Who are you? Who are you? I am Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Bridge to all debts. It is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and Bill. I am Scott Mance. And this one is Steve Morris. And this one feels that it will do its podcast its own way. And we will learn from our mistakes of the past by doing the perfect podcast for our deep dive of Star Trek, the animated series episode, Bem. And we are so excited and honored to be joined by a very, very, very special guest. He has been the director of animation and been an animator, animation director, storyboard artist for more than 50 years working on shows like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, She-Ra, Princess of Power, Fantastic Voyage, Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, The Brady Kids, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Super Mario Brothers, Super Show, and the last six episodes of Star Trek, the animated series, where he was the director of all six episodes. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents, Bill Reed. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much for for joining us. And I guess the first question that we have for you, Bill, is how did you come to start working at Filmation, the studio that produced the animated Star Trek, among many other animated shows that you worked on? I graduated from high school in 62. 66, I started at Disney. Worked there for a year in 67. I started at a place called Grant Ray Lawrence. And uh, we did uh, the first Spider-Man cartoons. So I was was an assistant uh, animator on that. I didn't get any screen credits, of course. Um, And after that, um, I went to uh, Filmation. And that was in the fall of 67. And um, they were doing um, Batman Superman Hour. Sure. Aquaman. Well, the, the super superhero type stuff. And I stayed there. If, if you know anything about the old days, we used to work for um, usually from April until November. And we'd get laid off because the uh, the shows would be finished. And then we'd uh, come back again in either um, March or April of the following year. So I worked with them uh, until uh, I got laid off. I uh, came back the following year and started with, um, I believe it was Archie, the Archies, uh, as an animator, Archie, and then we got into the Fat uh, Albert. And I just stayed with them. I, I was with Filmation for about 20 years. Wow. Not totally with them. I did go to work for a couple of other places in between the thing about animation. Well, I guess any film, um, you know, any film productions, the, the work ends and everybody's out the door, you know, so we're always looking for the next job. My, my guess is working for Filmation for 20 years that you probably did a whole bunch of different jobs working for them. What were some of the different things that you did for Filmation? I did work on some layouts, um, storyboard, animation, assistant animation, uh, and directing. 
So, so I just got to back up here a second. So the fact that you've worked on the animated Spider-Man cartoon that ran from 1967 to 1970, you know, Steve, uh, you know, I know, you know, I'm a big Spider-Man fan, but it all started for me. I'm sure for you too, Steve, with, with that animated show, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, uh, absolutely love that show, Bill. I, I love hearing that you worked on that. Um, so because you were doing a lot, wearing a lot of different hats for filmation and they were doing so many different shows, how did you come to direct season two of the animated Star Trek following Hal Sutherland, who directed the first season? At that time, there were so many uh, productions that were you know, going through the, the pipeline there. And Hal had done the first, uh, the first year, which I, I did do a little bit of animation on the, uh, the stock scenes. And uh, I had also started uh, doing some direction before that on uh, Lassie and the Rescue Rangers, I believe it was, and um, the Archies, that was it. So now I was cutting my teeth on, on those shows. And, uh, and Hal said, hey, uh, I've got some other, so many other things to do. I'd like you to direct. Uh, the second year of uh, Star Trek was sure, okay, because he had he had already set everything in motion as far as the stock scenes, the whole setups, you know, everything was pretty much done, except for the stories and then the storyboards and then the layouts and all that stuff had to be done. We, he was kind of my mentor uh, as a director. Um, he taught me so much stuff um, about. Uh, in those days, we used a 35 millimeter uh, camera you know, to film all this stuff. And there was a lot of camera tricks that, uh, that I had to learn. He, he suggested that I get a uh, 35 millimeter camera, still camera, and just start taking pictures and, you know, uh, seeing what I could do with the camera itself. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Second Pass. Second pass and underlighting and backlighting and all that stuff. And uh, I learned a lot from that. So I, I'm, I'm curious, before doing this gig, were you a Star Trek guy? I was, yeah. Yeah, I, I liked the, I watched all the uh, the first, it only took like two years. It was only two years, I believe. Three, three Great. years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it went quick and we're going, gee, that's too bad because it was such a good show. And then filmation came along and said, well, we'll do the, uh, we'll, we'll do the follow-up. I never saw the, the guys, they did come to the studio to do the, the voice recordings, uh, but I never uh, I never met them. I just was, you know, upstairs. The recording studio was downstairs in, uh, it was a, a two-story building in Reseda. I guess they came in the back door and went out the back door. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was it was fun. It was definitely fun. I loved working at, at in the business. So so I'm curious, like, you know, with all the all the shows that were happening at Filmation at the same time, you know, the thing with Star Trek was especially during the first year, you know, you're working with so many of the people who were responsible for the live action original series. Like like Dorothy Fontana, of course, Gene Roddenberry and David Gerald, who wrote some episodes from the original show. And then, of course, he worked heavily in the animated series. So I'm curious, like, 
what was your interaction with with anybody if they were still around or during the transition from season one to season two so that you can maintain sort of the integrity, so to speak, of 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 Star Trek, even though this was an animated show? You know, uh, personally, I did not have any contact with uh, Fontana or you know, any of the uh, any of those people. Uh, that was mostly with Hal and, and uh, Lou. They were the ones that uh, um, you know they they uh, did whatever uh, the, the way the, the original Star Trek was meant to be. Conveyed that information to us, and we followed through. You know, as best we could, but uh, they were they were the ones that uh, that had the contact with them. I was I was, I was just uh, I think I was 31 years old <laughs> at the time. You know, just a young punk kid learning learning the business. What What about Shat William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly? Because obviously they were still. You know, recording their voiceovers, you know, did they come into the studio to do it? Did they do it on location? How, how did you sort of work all that out? Uh, because I understand that many times they were not in the same room doing their voiceovers. Um, well, actually, with, with animation and doing voiceovers, you don't have to be in the same room. You know, you could be, it could be a week later that, you know, when Shatner could come in and then Meanwhile, could come in three days later and do his you know, uh, lines. And, uh, you know, being a good actor, they, they knew what to do and the inflection and the voices and, you know, uh, the mood of the scenes and all that stuff. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't all have to be together, but sometimes they were, uh, from what Al told me. Uh, Al was the one who would, Al and Lou would go down. Oh, they have this room, uh, probably a 12 by 12, 10 by 10, uh, size of a, a bedroom. That that was the recording studio at Filmation. Just a, like a small, very small room. Um, and they, they would go in there and record the voices. You know, and that was that. Of course, they, they recorded the voices along with the storyboard and the script. So they, they knew you know, what was happening with, with, the, uh, with the show, what the, the direction the show was going and what the way the characters were supposed to be acting. What about uh, Bob Klein, uh, storyboard artist Robert Klein? We we interviewed Robert Klein for our uh, deep dive on the time trap uh, recently, and he was a you know just a real you know uh, wonderful guy. You know, a lot of a uh, lot of good stories and everything. Uh, what about your interaction with with him and and the other artists when it came to these newer episodes in season two? This actually, can you see this? Yeah. Oh wow, that is awesome. The <laughs> Bob Klein storyboard. <laughs> wow. Nice. And for you know, since this is an audio podcast, uh, Bill is holding up a storyboard, vintage storyboard from the animated series that Bob Klein drew. So that is extremely cool. <laughs> you know, if, if there's any chance that you could take just a photo of that and we could post it up on our social media so people could see what we were looking at, that would be super cool. Yeah, I could do that. Um, there are several pages here. I think I've got uh, 10 pages of, the, of this. Uh, this is uh, Star Trek number 22. Oh, this is the um, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. Sure. 
And yeah, I if you could send us those, uh, uh, that would be great. <laughs> I could also send you, these are my uh, director's notes. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yes, please do. We will absolutely post that on our on our page so everyone can see what, what we're talking about. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I can do that. You know, Bill, it was your episode, speaking of how sharper than a serpent's tooth, which was the second to the last episode of the animated series. That was the episode that won Star Trek a daytime Emmy for outstanding children's series. And that is a like like <clears throat> people who just sort of like overlook the fact that oh, Star Trek didn't get any love from the Emmys. The animated series won an Emmy and was for one of the episodes that you directed. So how did that feel to get that kind of recognition from the Television Academy on Star Trek? Yeah, I almost fell over. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a surprise. Quite a surprise. When I was uh, working on the show, it was no different than any of the other shows to me. You know, uh, I, I did my work. I did the best I could, and did the whiz. It got us. It got one of them. No surprise. Well, congratulations on that. And just a little background on the episode itself. BEM was episode number 22018. That was the production number, making it the 18th animated series episode to be produced. It aired on NBC Saturday morning, September 14th, 1974, which made it, in effect, the 97th overall episode of Star Trek to air. And, Bill, I'm just wondering when... When you were working on the animated series, you know, we, we talk about like production number of this episode went into production. Like, were you working on like one episode at a time or was it like, you know, you were working on many episodes at once? Well, the way it worked is um, I would get the exposure sheets and storyboards and uh, I would be assigned a, a certain amount of, uh, you know, a certain number of animators to work with me. I would hand the work out. The guys would go out and they'd, uh, get a week to do the animation, bring it back to me. I would look at it, um, approve it, or tell them I, I want this or that changed. And after that, it would go to the assistants. The assistants would do uh, do their work. Then we'd go to ink and paint. And during that time, the uh, backgrounds were being painted. And as the stuff was going through down, well, we called it downstairs because that, that's where the uh, uh, the assistants were. I would be then given another board. So, okay, we've got one one show that's already in production while I'm doing another show. Okay, I started another show. The other one is, is kind of going through the, the, the pipeline. And so I, I could ha have had been you know, two or three shows going through at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of overlapping. After the shows went to the camera department, they'd shoot the, the, shoot the, the, the shows, the, the scenes. Editing would uh, put them all together, and then we'd do uh, what we call uh, dailies. We'd watch the dailies. They would show the, uh, the, the scenes, the stuff that was already done with the voice. And I'd go through it for retakes. Stuff didn't look good. I'd have to retake that scene or this scene, or you know, kind of cut little sections out here and there. They call it tightening it up. 
then I'd go back and I'd be you know, working on a different show and while I'm doing that one, that one's going through. Wow. If I didn't have something to work on, I'd, I'd just be sitting there for a week waiting for the show to go through. So naturally, it was a natural thing. Give me some more. Give me some more. Give me some more. I want some more. <laughs> well, I assume time pressures, the way that show was running, were pretty tight at the time. Yes, very tight. They all were. Oh, sure. We, um, we worked on the idea that in, I think in the middle of September was the air date when all the shows would come on. And uh, we had to have at least a couple in the pan. Well, well Bill, when, when you rewatched the episode to prep for your appearance here on Enterprise Incidents, I was wondering what, what you thought of uh, the episode during your rewatch. I thought it was okay. It was acceptable. Some of the uh, lip sync was off, but I kind of blame Paramount for that. <laughs> I've watched stuff on Paramount, and the lip sync is is always a little bit, you know, a little bit off here and there. When I watch stuff like that, I look for retakes. I look for mistakes, and I, I saw a few, but it was so simply done. It was almost like a uh, a moving comic book. Yeah, it's a good way to describe it. They didn't move much because of the budget. And the budget was very small for that show. They didn't think this uh, animator thing would go for cast uh, one, you know, another year. They didn't have any idea. I didn't know that it would be such a tense. That's the reason why we did the uh, the stock scenes, uh, the close-ups, the uh, the walk scenes, the run scenes. That to be reused over and over and over again. And, uh, oh, we know. <laughs> yeah. What was it like for you during your rewatch of Bab? What did you think? I liked it. I, I liked it. I, I, uh, I hadn't seen that thing in 50 years. You know, but <laughs> it was it was actually a, a kind of uh, you know brought back some memories, memories of uh, hanging around the place. You know. Shooting, shooting the crap with the boys and all that stuff. Um, I'll tell you, for me, this one was a weird one because as an episode as a whole, I found it to be very uneven. But I went into an uh, like an issue, like a theme that I had never seen before in Star Trek that I totally recognize, which is what it's like to have the arrogant, un- incompetent person suddenly on your team making bad decisions. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, I've dealt with that. That is a very non-Star trek sort of theme. And it was really, I had a strong emotional reaction to that character in this episode. Uh, yeah. So so this episode during my rewatch and, and you know, Bill, like I, Steve and I have seen the original series episodes like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But the animated series, you know, I, I hadn't really watched it repeatedly over the years until we started doing, we you know, covering the animated series on our on our show here. So when I go back and rewatch them, it's like I remember things about them, but I'm also seeing them with a completely different set of eyes, having different perspectives, and even an epiphany on this one, which I thought was an excellent episode of the animated series. It's a lot of action. It was ambitious. There are some big ideas even a little bit cerebral, but here you have the Enterprise crew doing something they didn't really do all that often on the original show is they are exploring strange, a strange new world. 
And there's a great message here about learning from your mistakes, about uh, about the way that that humanity, at least, is always striving for per- perfection, but never actually getting there, which was definitely one of the enduring appeals of Star Trek. And the Enterprise crew is once again humbled to learn that they're not as powerful as they think they are. But Steve, I had an epiphany by the end of the episode mm. that I will save for the end of the podcast about a really amazing film that I have covered with you elsewhere on your show, The Cinephiles, Hmm. that this episode definitely reminded me of. I am guessing it's not Airplane. It is definitely not Airplane. All right. Uh, But it it is science fiction, and it is probably one of the greatest movies ever made. But we will get to that, so to speak. One of the things, Bill, we've been doing every week is talking a little bit about what was going on in the actual world, in the real world, when the episode aired. And this aired on September 14th, 1974. And here are some of the things that were happening. Evil Knievel attempted to jump the Snake River Canyon and did not quite make it. Although he escaped <laughs> with minor injuries. Uh, Jimmy Connors wins the first of, of five titles in the U.S. Open. But here's the big one. And what's crazy is how um, appropriate this event is for things going on in our world today, which is on September 8th, President Gerald Ford pardoned for former President Richard Nixon. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's yeah. something literally I was listening about possible pardons in the news today. So that definitely is uh, something that we relate to. On September 12th, Emperor Haile Selassie was deposed in Ethiopia ending the Solomon dynasty, which I hadn't realized the Solomon dynasty in Ethiopia, Ethiopia had lasted since 1270, almost 800 years for that dynasty. And uh, in much lesser news, but on TV news on September 13th, the Rockford files premiered. Oh, great show. I love that show. Yes. Shall we get into BEM? Let's get into BEM. Are you ready, Bill? (laughs) Ready. (laughs) So we start, as always, with a captain's log and a star date. So, Bill, what I've been doing is I've been going back through the animated series and sort of plugging the star dates chronologically in where they fit in with the episodes of the original series, uh, thinking that 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 chronologically in star date order, that's the progression of the adventures of the Starship Enterprise on its five year mission. Uh, But unfortunately, this star date sort of like blows my theory out of the water with a star date that is 7403.6 which actually, Steve, makes this star date take place after the events of Star Trek, the motion picture. So that is out of the water. (laughs) Um, Well, you never know. I mean, you know, who knows how this all could have worked out. Um, And what we hear is that we are traveling with an independent observer from a new species, which is Ari Ben-Bem from the planet Pandro. So BAM stands for, well, not officially, but elsewhere in science fiction, BAM stands as an acronym for Bug-Eyed Monster, <laughs> although that is not uh, his name in this. It's just Ben. And that we're also going to a planet to, as you said, Scott, explore a strange new world. There's some aboriginal life forms on this planet. We're having a meeting in the briefing room about what we're going to do. Uh, we head off to the transporter room, and there, this alien Bem is running the transporters and setting up coordinates. Commander Bem, what are you doing here? This one has decided to accompany contact team for observation of same. So the voice, as Steve knows, was voiced by uh, James Dewin. Uh, I'm curious, Bill, uh, having worked as so long as a director in animation, what what makes for a good voiceover actor? 
Like what, what is the, what's the skill set? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> some, somebody who, who can, who can put their emotions in, into the dialogue. Um, you know, somebody who can, who can feel what the scene is supposed to be and, and how, what the characters are supposed to be doing, uh, makes it, you know, it's very important. I've, I've uh, through, through the years, I've worked uh, on some shows that were terrible, terrible voiceovers. And, and I just wondered, that I wish I would have been here. I would have told them, stop, stop, don't do that. Turn it, you know, get somebody else, for God's sake. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, to me, it's the, the emotion, how much emotion the, Absolutely. The, the actor can put into it. So BEM was actually written, Steve, by David Gerald, who, of course, wrote The Trouble with Tribbles for the original series. And he co-wrote The Cloudminders. And he also wrote More Tribbles, More Troubles for the animated series. So this is like his first like solo credit on an episode that doesn't have any Tribbles. Um, and originally, he submitted an outline on March 16th, 1968. So Steve and Bill... That means that he submitted this for possible inclusion into the third season of the original series. Mm. Uh, and it did not make the cut, obviously. But in the original story, Ben was kind of a practical joker. When he first meets Captain Kirk, Kirk shakes his hand and his hand comes off, you know, kind of like a, an old gag that you would see, uh, uh, you know, with the comedians and so on. And his mission on the Enterprise was to observe a star called Beta Omicron as it went Nova, but that is not his mission here, Steve. No, he his mission is to observe the Enterprise, and I had to say that Kirk is a little irritated. You were assigned to the ship as an independent observer, yet you have spent the past six missions in your quarters. You haven't done any observing at all. Until now, when we're dealing with possibly a very dangerous planet. Dude, Scott, I had such a reaction, because there's so many people who want to work in the film industry is, you know, I taught film school and with no hard work at all, with no experience, they want to sit around fantasizing about doing the job and then just like, Hey, give me a directing job. And it just, it so reminded me of this in, entitled people that I've dealt with in the past. And, and so I immediately had a strong negative reaction to Ben. So Bill, I'm curious, like when you, when you were watching, rewatching the episode, you know, refreshing your memory on it and everything like that. Uh, what what did you think of when you were hearing the voiceovers of like, so let's say Shatner and Nimoy? Because I think that they actually got better doing the voiceover thing when when you got into the second season of the animated series because they kind of, you know, figured things out during the first season. Yeah, I think so too. There was more emotion put into the, uh, the readings. It just seemed more realistic. More the voices were, were you know, real. Yeah. But when I was watching this the show, it reminded me of a um, article I read about an island off the coast of India. It's called the Forbidden Island, mm. and uh, it's owned by uh, by India, and they forbid anybody to go to that island. The reason is the, the people, the Aborigines that live there, they will eat anybody that gets, that lands on the island. Oh my goodness. People disappear there and have for centuries. 
the article I read said that the people that live there, the original, have been there for 60,000 years. Wow. Without any outside influence. Whoever gets on the island, they disappear. And I was thinking about that when I was watching this band. I said, oh, <laughs> I wonder if <laughs> somehow I'm reading the same thing I did. Well, good to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what that's what Kirk is trying to communicate to Ben right now. He's like, no, this isn't just any mission. This is a dangerous mission. This there are serious risks involved. You shouldn't go on. You know, you could have done some other stuff in the last six weeks that you've been doing nothing. But this one you shouldn't go on. And Ben insists. Understanding it is, Captain, but this one remains adamant. And Kirk goes, this is an odd time to remain adamant. But all right, let's go. Uh, you can almost see Shatner, like if we had done this uh, episode live action, you know, sort of having like the reactions and sort of the all, you know, comic timing that he brought to like I Mud or Trouble with Tribbles or or a piece of the action. Well, it makes sense that this is a David Gerald script because it is exactly that I'm irritated with the position my job has put me into, you know, situation. Certainly. And of course, Bem has set the controls on the transporter. And they beam down, they end up right on a cliff, except Kirk and Spock fly off, fall off that cliff and into the water. That was kind of funny to see that, that it was off like that, that, you know, but that, of course that was deliberate, but see, but finally we see kind of the uh, danger of, of the transporter being right on. What did you think of that moment, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of um, I could see it coming you know, right uh, trying to put in a few laughs yep into the show it worked it did I work th- I think it is a genuinely funny moment and Bem jumps in after them ostensibly to help them and while above the surface of the water he's offering his hand and help below the surface in the water we see something that I've never seen in any other science fiction thing I can think of, which is his legs walk away from his body and his legs have little tiny arms that basically pickpocket the Kirk and Spock and steal their communicators and phasers and replace them with other equipment. What did you think of the uh, Bem's ability to like detach his limbs and everything? And they, you know, they're able to, uh, you know, sort of do their own thing, Bill. Yeah. Very strange. (laughs) Strange. No, I was thinking of jellyfish, you know, mm. the way jellyfish are, that they're, they're a community, I suppose, of uh, thousands and thousands of cells, and they're all different, but they all work to one. This is one of those things where I think this is a really interesting science fiction idea, but because it's an episode of the animated series and we only have 20-something minutes, they don't really think about what that means to be a, a life form that is a colony of multiple life forms. And I also go, and I know this is a harsh criticism for the animated series, but something you brought up before of that really good stories, you should be able to kind of read backwards and forwards in the sense that if someone does something mysterious when you watch it the first time, after you get to the end and understand everything's going on, when you go back, it should make sense why they did that thing. I have no idea why Bem has jumped, dropped him in the water and is replacing their communicators. And he's all, because he had to have planned this in advance in order to have fake communicators and phasers 
And yet why he's doing any of this makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's established in the beginning of the episode when Kirk first sees Ben in the transporter room that he's supposed to be observing, but he spent like a half dozen missions like in his quarters. Maybe he was building the replica phasers phasers and communicators. But yeah. um, Yeah. Why is he doing any of this? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In the future, Commander Ben, you will leave the operation of the transporter to Mr. Scott or one of the regular transporter crew. And then what we hear from Lieutenant Uhura is that there is some sort of space anomaly that is like a thousand kilometers away. And they say a term and I got to learn something new, which is they say it's Brownian movement only. And I was like, Brownian movement. What does that mean? I'd never heard that. That means it's movement with no discernible direction. So Bill, I'm curious, like what was your take on how the animated Star Trek did not talk down to its audience of probably kids watching on Saturday morning, but was actually a very intelligent show uh, with some kind of heavy themes for what, what the audience might have been used to on a Saturday morning. It really wasn't aimed at kids. You know, uh, it was aimed at adults. It's pretty obvious that looking at some of the other shows that, that were on at the same time, were all, uh, you know, furry little animals or funny little, you know, characters. And here, here's Star Trek. I'm sure that it was written for adults and um, produced for adults. Yeah, sure was. And one thing that's happening that's very subtle, but as I'm watching this go on, because we're in contact with Uhura, is I suddenly go, is Uhura in command? Yes, she is. Uhura, once again, in command of the Enterprise after the Laurel Eye signal. But there's a difference here, Steve and Bill, is because in the Laurel Eye signal, Uhura took command because the men were incapacitated. Here, she is in command. Because she is next in line to be in command on the bridge. Uh, She was the highest ranking officer, and she even supersedes Scotty at one point by beaming him and Sulu back up to the Enterprise after they want to stay down and look for Captain Kirk. But that's what that's not what Kirk's orders were. So, yes, uh, that is a that is a great observation. Absolutely worth pointing out. And uh, you can hear another great voiceover, Bill. Uh, in this episode is Nichelle Nichols, who just always great, gave not one, but two great performances in this episode. But I thought that she was fantastic. What did you think while rewatching the episode? Yeah, I, I thought so too. It's great to hear this, this the, the voices, the original voices from the, the live actions, you know. You can almost close your eyes and it would be like watching the live action again. Uh, Lieutenant Arix is tracking a non-network sensory stasis. Uh, try explaining to that to the kids. But there is something... Or the adults. Yeah, or <laughs> the adults. <laughs> really, really good point. The implication is that there is something else on this planet. Perhaps something intelligent. It might be just an atmospheric effect, some kind of electrical storm. We've seen unidentified planetary phenomena before that have resembled intelligent activity. So, Steve, what do you think Captain Kirk is referring to? Uh, could be the companion in Metamorphosis. That is absolutely what, what I was thinking of, especially when you see this uh, this other life form. It kind of resembles the companion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I totally thought about the companion. I totally thought Metamorphosis because, of course, I think about that episode all the time. But I also thought about, you know, the alien entity from Day of the Dove, mm-hmm. which was clearly intelligent. 
but uh, uh, an unidentified phenomenon. So, so I just thought that was worth bringing up uh, uh, that that he's he's talking about past experiences uh, on the uh, on the Enterprise. And as they're moving through this rainforest, Ben realizes there's life forms somewhere, and he just takes off. And again, I go thinking about people I've worked with who leapt ahead when they shouldn't have, and then I have to clean up their messes, which is what Kirk and Spock are going to have to do because they go off chasing Bem, and Bem ends up detaching and separating his head and his legs so he can get through some brambles, and Kirk and Spock have to go around. They're getting more and more frustrated as they try to catch him, and then we see that Bem is surrounded by these lizard guys with spears. It appears to be a native food gathering party. Yes, and the food they have gathered is Bem. That brings us to the end of Act One. We come back in Act Two and we call down uh, from the ship to Scotty because they can't reach the captain and he can't find the captain. And the captain's communicator is not showing up. And Scotty offers to track the captain down on the planet, and she overrides him. I'm sorry, Mr. Scott, that's not procedure. We can't take chances. We're talking about the captain. I know it, but we have to follow his orders. Stand by to beam up. So I have two thoughts. One is I love watching Uhura be in command. And two is this doesn't make sense to me in the chain of command. Scotty's still her superior officer. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that she can shut him down. But I like the scene. Well, she's on the bridge and he's not. So absolutely true. So she's uh, she's in command on the bridge. But also, I noticed that Sulu is down there with him. But, you know, George Takei doesn't have any dialogue (laughs) in this episode. He's just kind of there. And so Kirk naturally pulls out his communicator to call up to the Enterprise and realizes that they're fakes. And not only are they fakes, but the phasers are fakes. But they realize they still have to rescue Bem. Commander Bem seems to be a model prisoner. We'll have to wait until nightfall. And I love that they walk up to Bem, who says, Captain. And Kirk says, shut up. We're rescuing you. (laughs) That's like a classic Kirk line. It's almost more of a classic Kirk in the movies line, I think. Well, it's also a, it's also the classic original series line because uh, McCoy said that to Spock mm, mm. in the Immunity Syndrome when he was in the shuttlecraft, and he responds, "Why, thank you, Captain McCoy." So, so I want to ask Bill, like you know, as we're progressing along with this episode, and we're seeing the Aborigines, uh, you know, what did you think of the design of the Aborigines? Because it made me think of the Gorn a little bit from the original series. Um, <laughs> I don't remember the original series with with that um but the <laughs> characters were to me a little phony i mean maybe it was the drawing of them i'm always looking for good drawing i suppose that goes back to my uh, art school days just the fact that there were lizard people they could have been something else and maybe a little more uh, maybe crocodiles or <laughs> something more you know ominous I was looking at uh, recently, it was on social media, a comic book buddy of mine posted a thing that was a comparison between comic book pages from the 1960s and 70s and comic book pages today and talking about why comic book artists today can't draw two pages a day, which, you know, Jack Kirby and, and he was just showing like the level of detail and watching the animated series, you could see this was done fast. They didn't have a lot of time to put in a lot of detail on these designs, you know? Um, 
So uh, we're going to break them out. It's the middle of the night. Everything's going to be cool. No, it's not going to be cool because here are the lizard people. And now we're all in cages. <laughs> I love Kirk's line. He says, how come we always end up like this? <laughs> it's a it's a it's a funny little bit. I don't quite understand where it goes. I was just expressing my curiosity at our ability to get into these kind of situations. Fate, Captain. Fate. It's like a joke that lands flat to me. Like I don't I like I could see like you were trying to have Spock make some kind of a joke and it doesn't quite deliver. Commander Ben, I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to rescue you. Good intentions, Kirk Captain, are not enough. Now this is where Bem just starts insulting Captain Kirk like this is all his fault. Yeah, yeah. And Kirk this is getting is... irritated. <laughs> Starfleet told us you were best captain in fleet. Actions to date belie this. Commander Bem, you are responsible for the situation we are in. You disobeyed orders by running off. And, and what's so funny, again, it goes back to me being a teacher. I once had a student who royally screwed something up and had not come to class the day that we had taught the thing that he screwed up. And he said, look, I'm the student. You're the teacher. If I don't know something, that's your fault. And I just was like, the, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so much entitlement. And that's all I can think about when I'm watching Ben. <laughs> it's just it's irritating me. I don't know how you did it. You replaced our phasers and communicators with phonies. You place too much dependence, Kirk Captain, on phasers and communicators. Either one could solve our problems right now. If that is all. And Bem, A, pulls out the phasers and communicators he took, and then he separates in order to give them back to them. And we suddenly, now they realize that Bem is a colony creature. A colony creature, very interesting. Consider yourself under arrest protective custody to keep you from any more escapades. Mr. Spock, keep watch. Kirk fires the phaser to break them out and the lizard people show up and they charge and we start to fire on them and then we are engulfed in this strange color, which I agree, Scott, does remind me of the companion for Metamorphosis and we hear Michelle Nichols's voice. No, do not use your weapons. So Bill, like now you have the second voiceover from Michelle as this uh, godlike alien entity. So what did you think of her performance, her vocal performance in this capacity? You know, I had a hard time understanding what she was saying because her voice was so uh, weak. Yeah. Mm. Being the, the one in charge, she should have had a stronger voice. Mm. And, you know, that's my thoughts on that. And well, she's had a very sweet, very sweet voice. Although at one point she did get angry, but they didn't really convey the what we call gravitas, you know, of somebody in that position. What gives you the right to intrude here? This planet is not for your use. My children are not for your tests. Your weapons will be nullified. Uh, that is like a strong non-interference. Like this is why you have a prime directive. You should not be mucking around here. Right. Now, now right. while we're while while this episode is going along, you know, you're you're with them and you're with the Aborigines on the planet. And it's obviously very, very primitive. And then, boom, out of nowhere, you've got this godlike alien entity with uh, that is obviously very, 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 very powerful, like uh, the Organians almost or like the companion, Steve, like you said. So David Gerald, who wrote the episode wrote the part of the alien entity for Nichelle Nichols. Mm. And he did that deliberately as a dig against then 
uh, presidential uh, candidate, certainly he was running for it, George Wallace. So David Gerald said, quote, when George Wallace, who was a known racist, was running for president, the joke was that he died on the operating table and said, I died, I saw God, and she's black. The idea mm-hmm. of having Michelle play God in a 1970s script just struck me as a very subtle way of doing that joke. Also, Gene Roddenberry gave Gerald a lot of notes, which included the addition of a godlike alien entity. And as a you know, longtime uh, or sort of deep dive Trek fans know, uh, Gene Roddenberry was trying to get Star Trek off the ground, whether it was as a feature film or a brand new series with a story in which the Enterprise meets God. And of course, they kind of sort of met God in Star Trek V, but realized it was not God after all. But uh, Gerald got a lot of notes and he said, quote, his notes on Ben were very confusing and he added elements that pulled the story way off its original premise. That's why it's kind of far out. Yeah, first of all, that doesn't surprise me because that's what like I feel so mixed about this episode because it's kind of all over the place in terms of what it wants to be. Um, Just on the God thing, it just occurred to me is even though we've talked about in the episode in Bread and Circuses where they they do a play for, you know, it's the son of God in that moment that I always find a little weird for me personally. You know, what just occurred to me is what Roddenberry's really creating is not a monotheistic universe. He's creating a polytheistic universe because we have all sorts of different gods who we meet along the way between Apollo and the Organians. And this is clearly the god of this planet is this character we're seeing here. And when he creates uh, Next Gen, who's the first main character we meet, is another god, which is the Q. Q, absolutely. You know, the networks of the 60s, and they should be very upset by this as they were trying to rein him in. Um, I think it's a really interesting choice. Yeah, they probably like he got away with it because it was animated, not live action. Exactly. Right, that, you know, Bill, what did you what did you think like watching the episode? You get to this point, and, you know, you got like, you know, the sort of the conflict with Kirk and Spock and Bam, and then, you know, the Aborigines, and then boom, here's this like godlike entity. I mean, again, you know, like 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 we said, you know, this was not really aimed at kids. But this is a really far out, far out uh, turning point in the story. Maybe a little too far out for me. <laughs> it uh, made me think, well, so there is a God and he is a woman. Yeah. But she is the, the God of this planet. It's not like she's the God of the universe, which is kind of confusing because I, I've been brought up with just the, the idea of one God. Yeah. You know? I think most of us who are Christians, you know, think, uh, well, there's one, there's one God, and that's it. You know, here comes another one, which is really strange. I don't know, it was very odd. That's why it suddenly hit me like, oh, this is polytheism because the Assyrians can have their gods and the Egyptians can have their gods and the Hebrews can have their God. And that's and like it's a completely different way of thinking about how things work. This is the God for this planet. It's very different. Right. But- Gentlemen, is it the God for this planet, or is this alien entity, this godlike voice, part of a bigger chain, part of a bigger species that goes beyond this planet? And I actually like that there's no answer to that question. Hmm. That it's uh it just is again, it presents an idea. Well, you have this this godlike entity which is overlooking the development of the uh, original natives of the planet, not to be interfered with. 
And I'm going to save this for the end of the episode when I when I make my revelation here. But maybe this is part of of a bigger picture, and we're only seeing a very very small piece of the puzzle. And when this color uh, entity shows up and paralyzes all of them, we are going to have something that we had happen in all sorts of ep- episodes of Star Trek, which is Kirk makes his introduction. And he has always said, I am James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. And this time he says something different. He says, I am Captain James Tiberius Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. This is a landmark moment in the animated series. And in, in Star Trek's 57-year history now, because this is the episode where we learned what the T in Captain James T. Kirk actually stood for, Tiberius. Now, you know, there have been sort of like all these discussions back and forth about whether or not the animated series was officially part of the Star Trek canon. But this moment makes it quite clear that, yes, absolutely it is, because the name Tiberius was used in many Star Trek novels after this episode aired. And it was also said again 17 years later during the trial scene of Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So not only does does Kirk reveal that his T in his middle name stands for Tiberius, but he actually says it three times uh, over the rest of the course of this episode. So where did the name Tiberius come from? Well, according to David Gerald, he was at a fan convention in the early 70s, and someone asked him, what does the T stand for in James T. Kirk? And uh, he had just been watching I, Claudius, I guess. And uh, oh, of course, that's where it came from. <laughs> he just blurted out Tiberius as a joke, you know, just to kind of get a laugh from the crowd. But then he went back and had a conversation with Dorothy Fontana and Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry said, yeah, you know what? I like it. Let's go for it. So that is the story of James Tiberius Kirk becoming canon. And uh, and the other thing that happens, Steve, that I had an epiphany on is that while Kirk and Spock are being held captive, Kirk says, There are times, Mr. Spock, when I think I should have been a librarian. Because he was a stack of books with legs? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, like I said, I think that moment kind of falls flat. But now you've made it kind of good because you reference one of our most important little bits of Kirk trivia from the from the, his first episode with and uh, where no man has gone before. So I'm cool with it. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> um, we come back in Act Three and we ask Eric's on the bridge. Have you found the captain? And Eric said, "I have located emanations that could be Captain Kirk's and another set that could be Mister Spock's, but the sensory anomaly." has interfered with our detection devices so that positive identification remains impossible. And Uhura says, which means, Scotty <laughs> says, I think he said maybe. <laughs> that is the first moment where I think Eric's really showed a character. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I feel like season two of the animated series, Eric's was much more prominent as a character instead of just kind of like sitting there and like, you know, the background or the foreground as he was for, for most of the, uh, the first season. So, so Bill, what did you think of Arix? You know, here's a navigator with three limbs, three arms and three legs. And, you know, also voiced by James Dillon. I liked it. I liked the, the character. Definitely a different looking, but from likable. Yep. 
Ready your security squad. We're going down there. Issue phaser rifles. So it's like, oh, wow. We got some big guns heading down. Literally. Back, yeah. Back on the planet. Bem continues to insult Captain Kirk. And, and Kirk continues to snap back at him. This one judges you not an intelligent commander. Commander Bem, Mr. Spock and I are here because we thought that you were worth rescuing. It was more to preserve the diplomatic relations between the Federation and planet Pandro than from any great affection for yourself. It totally reminds me of how he talks to the, I forget the guy's name, but on the In Trouble with Tribbles when he's arguing with... Um, oh, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Barris. With Mr. Barris, yeah. I <laughs> could totally hear J David Gerald's voice in that. So, Bill, I have a question. So, when you were watching Star Trek in the late 60s, what did you think of the chemistry between William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. <laughs> Watching the original stuff, golly, um, uh, they seemed like a, uh, a pretty good team, uh, although um, with their differences, they, they were each their own character. Yeah, uh, for sure. I loved the show within the first uh, three years. It was just something I always looked forward to. So as much as Kirk is getting frustrated with Bem, man, Bem's got some sick burns. Check this one out. Tandro will not have dealings with inefficient and inferior species. You have failed everything you have attempted. You have not rescued this one, and you have not been able to handle local aborigines. <laughs> Bem is not the not a fun guy. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> And then he splits into multiple pieces and just walks out and says, This one wishes you, what is the earth word? Luck. You will require it. And then he just walks away and Kirk's going, hey, let us out. Come on. <laughs> and then Kirk tries to, and this doesn't make any sense to me, but he tries to use his communicator to call the alien intelligence and it's no good. And Spock suggests, hey, maybe our communicators aren't strong enough. Let's stick them together to double the strength. <laughs> and I like, I do really like, uh, Bill, I like the way that you guys did this, which is that he just tosses the communicator out of frame. And a second later, the double communicator flies back into frame. I thought that was a cool choice. Yeah. yeah. Magnetic. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know what I also like about this moment is, you know, they're trying to work through the problem. And yeah. you Kirk and Spock working through the problem, you know, like the way that, you know, even though the alternative factor is not a great episode, you know, Steve, we talked about many times how that moment in the briefing room where they're working through the problem is quintessential Star Trek vintage Kirk and Spock. And this moment here, even though it passes kind of quickly, uh, you know, where Spock says, oh, what if we put them together? I mean, it seems like such an easy fix, but I still like that they are working together. Like this really feels like Star Trek to me. Yeah, it, to me, it's just it just doesn't make sense. Like the the color, there was no they never used the communicators to talk to this color creature before, you know. And so, like, why would you think this would work now? And the yeah, I I totally agree with you. It is one of those scenes from Star Trek. But I also am like, I don't know if I quite get this. Yeah. But needless to say, the super duper double communicator does work, <laughs> and the this god shows up, and Kirk says, "We apologize for intruding." We did not realize the situation. We will leave. We will tell others of our kind not to bother you here. This is good. Go. Go now and do not return. And then Kirk goes, yeah, but we have this one other guy we got to get. 
<laughs> you must not interfere with my children. I will allow you to contact your ship. Go now. So Kirk calls up to the Enterprise, but instead of saying, hey, beam me up, he says, Beam down a security squad with heavy-duty tricorders set for Pandronian scanning. And I'm like, he just made a deal with the god of this planet that he wouldn't mess around with the people, and now you're beaming down a big security team? This does not seem like you're honoring your your deal. Yeah, it was a little out there. He should have, uh, that, that conversation happened, should have happened after the security. Yeah, piece. it's weird. Yeah. yeah. But the security beams down. He tells them to use the lightest possible stun settings. They go out and here come the, the lizard creatures who we fire on. And now Bem, for no reason I can understand at all, has a complete change of heart. Embarrassment results. This one is shamed. This one has failed in its judgment. Do you see any reason why he had this change of heart? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, he he suddenly, like, there was no, like, epiphany moment for him where he realized he was wrong. He just suddenly, it seems out of nowhere. What do you, what yeah. do you think, Bill? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was kind of a, a switch, too quick of a switch. He went from being arrogant to humble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this goes to, it's a short show. And it also, I really wonder about what were all the contradictory notes he got from Roddenberry and how was he trying to solve these problems? And this is, this is, you know, when you deal with executives and sometimes multiple executives throwing you multiple notes, this is sometimes what happens. Yep. Story threads get messed up or dropped or character beats don't make sense. Um, and of course, in the midst of this, suddenly we're once again in those colors. You are still interfering? I am angered. We could not leave one of our own behind. It is our responsibility to take care of our own, just as it is your responsibility to take care of yours. And she says, Yes, you have some wisdom, James Tiberius Kirk. I think we say Tiberius at least three times in this episode. It's like once we're going right. to introduce it, we're going to yeah. really drive home what this middle name is. I think Kirk refers to himself as Tiberius three times, and then you yeah. hear it again right now. Yeah. yeah. This one has greatly erred. The mission was to judge, and right of judgment was not conferred. This one must disassemble unity. So essentially, Bem is going to kill himself or kill this right. version of himself. Yeah, yeah. Now, now here's another way in which, which uh, this feels like Star Trek to me is that even though Kirk was trying to reason with the alien entity, and then he like reneged on his negotiation. Now he's trying to re- now he's trying to negotiate. And appeal to both of them. He's trying to appeal to Bem not to do this. And he's trying to appeal to the godlike alien entity that, you know, they will go in peace. But they had to just get this, you know, this alien back. And and here again is where I do really like the message. This one has acted badly. Yes, you have erred. But if you disassemble, you cannot learn from your error. Errors demand recognition so that they will not be repeated. Such a great message. This is perfect for a Saturday morning show that, you know, to learn from your mistakes. A lot going on uh, in in these short episodes of the animated series. Uh, Bill, I I pointed out last time we were doing this that uh, in the first season of the animated series, the episodes were, with the opening credits and the closing credits, about 24 minutes long, give or take a couple of seconds. And in the second season, the episodes were 23 minutes and 30 seconds, give or take. 
And so you kind of lost 30 seconds of story time in season two, but still like the way that you were all able to cram so much into each and every episode and still have it be intelligent and, and still have it feel like vintage Star Trek is I think what makes the series so, so worthy, why it, why it has held up over these years, why it's, it's been unfairly overlooked in the whole Star Trek canon of it all. And, and also something that I got to say, you should be really proud of. So we've had this first lesson of, hey, you need to learn from your mistakes. A great, great uh, lesson. And now we have a second one. You do not demand punishment. Punishment? What is punishment? Revenge? Intelligent beings need no revenge. Punishment is necessary only where learning cannot occur without it. I love that message. Punishment is only necessary when learning will not occur without it. Amazing. Amazing. And if this was, you know, like like I said many times, this is is pure Star Trek. I love it. Back on the bridge, uh, we classify this planet as strictly quarantined. I don't think we're going to say this is like, you know... Uh, house four house four but it's but we're gonna stay away from it fascinating captain a highly advanced alien entity using this particular system as a laboratory for guiding another race to intelligence almost a god you might say okay here it is all right i'm ready all right bill steve i'm watching this episode to prep for enterprise incidents and it hit me like a ton of bricks in a way that it never did before. This episode must have been in some way inspired by 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because what you have here, a highly advanced being using a planet as a laboratory for guiding another race to intelligence. Isn't that what the monolith did with the apes at the dawn of man? through to 2001 and Jupiter beyond the infinity, guiding humanity to a higher level of intelligence, guiding it, but not interfering. And then going one step further in in the uh, book and the film for 2010, you know, when Jupiter explodes, making Europa another planet that's going to evolve, the message is do not go to that planet. All these other planets are yours. Uh, stay away from this one and let let the uh, intelligent life evolve on its own. The alien entity, the godlike alien entity in BEM is basically the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And just like the monolith was part of a bigger intelligent species that could possibly guiding other planets around the galaxy in the universe to, to evolve, maybe the alien entity that's voiced by Nichelle Nichols is part of a bigger, you know, intelligent being that's doing the same for this planet and other planets as well. Just, just a thought, you know, um, this is all retcon and so on and so on, but I, I just went with it. <laughs> you know, when you said you had an epiphany, I was sitting there racking my brains going, how the hell is he going to connect this to Blade Runner, which is another oh, film that we yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. on another podcast. <laughs> and then as soon as you said, the thing about the God bringing this primitive society, I was like, oh, we're going 2001. I think it's a perfectly good reference. And of course, I mean, obviously, David Gerald has watched 2001. So it, it's very, very possible. What do you think of my epiphany, Bill? Is that my, am, I, uh, am I crazy? Am I like 
crazy Star Trek fan? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, I think, of course you're a crazy Star Trek fan. Like, <laughs> I think that's pretty well established. Mr. Spock, the difference is meaningless. In comparison, we're all still children. And Bem, much humbled now and much changed, says, In this one's case, Kirk Captain, this one is still an eggling. And then the last thing we hear is the voice of Nichelle Nichols saying, Go in peace. Yes, go in peace. You have learned much. Be proud. What a great way to end this episode. Yeah. What did you think of the ending, Bill? I thought it was good. It, it reminded me of uh, Sunday Mass. You know, at the end, it's uh, God bless you and go in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You know, with all the shows that you've worked on, Bill, over these years, I mean, you are you are a, a legend in animation because of all these different shows that you worked on. I, I just sort of hit the tip of the iceberg at the top of this conversation. But how proud are you of your your work on Star Trek, whether it's the work specifically on Star Trek on how well that it's held up, how well it stands, it's it has stood out over these years. And again, the fact that it won an Emmy. Yeah, uh, the the quality of the animation has always kind of uh, not been the greatest for me. I, I wish that I could have done better, but the, the money wasn't there, and I could not have done anything more than I did. Um, but um, it, you know, it still looks good. It, it holds up. Uh, the voices are are still great, and uh, it'll probably be around for another who knows. 30, 50 years. <laughs> yeah, if not longer. Steve, what about you? What was your take on Bam after the conversation? So I had a stronger emotional reaction to this episode than I have to most of them, not because I think it's a great episode, but because I've dealt with people like Bam. And that is one thing that really, really bugs me. Um, and so I'm glad that Bam learns important lessons, even if structure wise, I don't think it qu quite works. 100%. It's very uneven as an episode, but it has some nice moments in it. That's how I feel about it. Uh, you know, I, I agree with that. Again, you know, when I was when I was initially watching it, I felt like the whole, you know, godlike alien thing, like felt like a different, a completely different story. But then, you know, reaching the end and sort of like, you know, the when they're back on the bridge, uh, uh, analyzing like what the alien's purpose was in all of this and having that epiphany about the monolith in 2001, I just went, that is such a cerebral cerebral provocative concept that that transcends you know star trek whether it's the animated series or the live action and and it just made me go wow that they that this was part of an animated episode of star trek in 1974 was really really a beautiful thing and again the power of the voiceovers from shatner and Nimoy and especially uh michelle nichols uh, uh i think this is a a a really really good episode there were only six episodes of Star Trek in the animated series in the second season, but they're all good as you'll see, as we keep going. And, uh, you know, Bill, uh, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to talk with us about your time doing the animated series and, uh, and about, uh, joining us for the conversation. Thank you so very, very much. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's always fun to uh, go down the memory, memory lane. Yeah. You know, also, you know, when I found you, it was because you were, you are doing artwork that you're you're selling to people through Etsy. That's how I found, and I was able to reach out to you. So can you tell us a little bit more about this and where people can look at your artwork for sale? Etsy.com, Bill Reed. 
Yeah, I sell um, original paintings and prints of paintings that I've done. And I sell, I sell quite a few of my uh, cartoon-based stuff. You know, I do, uh, I've done Popeye and Wimpy and you know, stuff like that, and people love it. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I was like, wow, I was like really perusing the site before I was like, oh, I better email him so I can ask him about being on our show. <laughs> yeah. Glad you found me. <laughs> so that is what we think of Bem. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on Facebook. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. It's Enter Incidents if Twitter is your thing. Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And if you want to support the show, you can do it for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as nine ninety nine through Spotify for Podcasters. The link is right there at the top of the show, show notes. And of course, we'd love it if you have a moment to go to Apple Podcasts where you could subscribe or YouTube or Spotify or Stitcher. And if it's on Apple Podcasts, make sure to read a re make sure to write a review. They really, really help the show. And of course, if you want to leave your comments on YouTube, we love those there. If you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking, Scott, as you were talking about the God in 2001, I was like, well, what other episodes of the cinephiles have we dealt with sort of gods and angels? And I went and looked through and it's a pretty diverse list. For instance, if you didn't want 2001, you were more in the mood for a comedy. Well, you could go to Monty Python's The Life of Brian, <laughs> which is definitely a different take on religion. A different one from that is my all time favorite holiday movie, which is Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. And then finally, a movie that I absolutely adore that nobody talks about anymore, but is a deep movie. Movie, and God is a main character, and that is, of course, Carl Reiner's Oh God, which is a that's a great one. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Of course, there's a, didn't we do 2001 in two parts? We did. It's a two parter, yeah. Two parter, two part episode of 2001 deep diving on the cinephiles. I, uh, but uh, you know, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so more people can find out about us if they haven't already found out about us. And if you are a latecomer to Enterprise Incidents, guess what? Not only are we covering the animated series this year, 2023, on its 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the animated series, we covered each and every episode of the original series, all 80 episodes of the original series. And we've had amazing guests there as well. So be sure to check out those episodes as well. And uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us, Bill Reed. It has been an absolute pleasure. And be sure to join us for our next episode of Enterprise Incidents, where we covered the animated series episode, The Practical joker that is next time on enterprise incidents and until then keep going boldly